in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, a common characteristic among religious people, is wonderfully portrayed. That characteristic being misplaced is religious confidence. Lewis beautifully points out a conversation between a resident of hell, who doesn't know he's there, and an old acquaintance who is on the bus who's visiting from heaven. So his friend says, is it possible to know that you don't know where you've been? He says, now that you mention it, I don't think we've ever given it a name. What would you call it? Well, we call it hell. Oh, there's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I may not be as orthodox in your sense of the word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply, simply, seriously, and reverently. Discuss hell reverently? I meant what I said. You're in hell. Go on, my dear boy, go on. This is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why in your view I was sent there. I'm not angry. But don't you know why you're here? You went there because you've turned away from the faith. Are you serious, Dick? Perfectly serious. Oh, this is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions, even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken? Hmm. Although Lewis knew from the scriptures that no one would be in hell without knowing that he's there, this conversation perfectly captures the misleading religious confidence of unbelieving believers that left unrepentant will go to hell by their own choice. And as our gospel reading states, there will come a day when untold numbers, both great and small, will stand before the throne of God. And at first, the disbelieving that are really there, Jesus will say to them, they will say to the Lord, rather, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Granted, it's a difficult subject for us to breach and to understand sincere religious people will be lost. But this is what the scriptures indicate, and this and very others scriptures indicate is precisely the case. And moreover, some whose destiny this is, will seemingly come from Bible-believing Orthodox churches. People who confidently declare the words of the Nicene Creed, which we will say in a few minutes. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, etc., those who claim to believe will also be those who believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Some will be lost. Why? Because they've been lulled by a false of sense religious security, which has prevented them from getting to the heart of the matter of knowing God and walking with Him in their lives. In other words, it's a dark side of the religious, even though it's sunny in 75. So today's text, however, is Paul's antidote. Aren't you glad? What a wonderful, optimistic opening, eh? <laughs> Paul's text is an antidote to that. 
to, to, Paul warns the religious people to guard ourselves from the dangers of false religious confidence. I hope you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Remember where we've been these past six weeks. Paul, in these first two chapters, has been desirous to make sure that when he gets to Rome, he's going to find a healthy church. That's all he wants. And he knows the way Romans are, and he knows the way Jewish people are. And so he understands the two extremes of Christians that come out of gospel belief. The first is those who intellectually believe the message of Jesus Christ, and yet it has no impact in their lives in the, on the ground at all. That's the Romans 1, 18-32. He addressed that. And to the Roman believers, he, he really admonished them to turn back. But then, since chap- the beginning of chapter 2, he's approached it to the other group who believe and yet are so focused on rule-keeping, and they point their fingers down at others, and the very marks of the gospel ring hollow to the culture around them because of their own self-righteousness. And we saw that last week in the way that some Jewish believers tend to look down their noses at Roman believers. In other words, they're just another form of the Pharisees. They're, it's dead orthodoxy. They may know their Bibles, but they don't live their Bibles. And so Paul is reaching out to them. And so you need to remember, going three weeks back, that this is all set in the conversation of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that as we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, you are righteous, for the just shall live by faith. Remember that? So that's the context which Paul is saying these things, or it, it doesn't make any sense to you at all. So he's reached out to the Romans, and now he's reaching out to the Jewish believers, and it continues, by the way, in chapter 3, which we will continue next year, and it gets even better. Had a believer at 8 o'clock said, why are we continuing? I go, because it's Reformation Sunday. Yeah. And All Saints Sunday after that, and then it's Stewardship Sunday after that, and then we're getting ready for Advent. Can you believe that? It's going right along. But this is a good word, no matter who you are this morning, whether you just wandered in here and are irreligious, to the casual church attender, and to the regular church goer. It's for each and every one of us to step back and make sure we put first things first. And so there's two big points in this passage. Number one, a warning about overconfidence in your association. And two, a call for a new heart. That's it. A warning about overconfidence in association. And two, a call for a renewed heart. First, the warning about their association. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, 
dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is writing to these Roman Jewish believers in the Roman church who are now Christians. And he's reminding them that, oh, if you're relying on your law, obeying the law, being religious, utilizing your self-effort in the hopes of somehow achieving, achieving God's pleasure, his favor upon you by just your works alone, he's, he's warning them of such thought. He knew that their tendency was that they're acceptable to God through their affiliation to one another as Jews. Because he is one. And he's saying that their actions and the way they live their lives in Rome must match their profession of faith. So in applying this to ourselves, we don't have to go far, do we? You know, just substitute the word Jew for any of the following. In other words, if anyone would come on Sundays and warm a seat... If anyone would be a member of a particular church, if anyone would be baptized, if anyone would be confirmed, if anyone would call themselves an Anglican, I can't tell you how many times at Jake I've asked this question and I've got pretty much the same answer. I would say, so you, you're a Christian? Of course, I'm Catholic. <laughs> or, of course, I'm, 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 I'm a member of First Pres. Or, of course, I was baptized Methodist. There are as many answers to that question as there are affiliations and rights, R-I-T-E. But none of those by themselves will convince God of your justification before him. As positive as they are, as wonderful as they are, according to what Paul is saying, they're outward appearances only. And for many of the Jewish leaders... Paul knows, because it's all out in the ancient world, we're guilty of the behaviors in verses 21 to 23. Many in the Roman church would have known about Orthodox Jews among them in their business dealings and left loopholes for a little refined stealing. The Talmud itself shared three of its most illustrious rabbis had committed adultery. And while they abhorred idolatry and the dishonor of God, they had robbed God's temple of, by profaning sacred things. It's like you hey, coming up to me and saying, Hey, Gene, could I borrow a chalice so I can have a party because we're going to drink out of it at a wine party, at a wine tasting? The answer to that is no. <laughs> it's holy things. But that's what they were doing. They were profaning the holy things of God. Even if they had done these things overtly, spiritually, they're guilty. So in a few sentences, what Paul has done here, he's done away with the false security, which they could derive from saying, we're God's chosen people. We got the truth. We know the 39 articles. I've memorized the Nicene Creed. They were not okay, and their lives did not line up their profession. And Paul wants to make sure that, he, even though he's never met them, he wants to make sure that their lives do make up their profession. And notice what he says. He brings in the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 5. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ladies and gentlemen, the world notice how we live our lives. 
We're the only Bible our neighbors ever see. It was said of him he made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty God and the Christian confessions which would become the pillars of his new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew strength from his great work from it. As scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Indeed, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with absolutely no inward reality. My friends, is the name of God glorified because of us in our community? Or is it blasphemed? And so Paul gets very interesting. He then takes the discussion quickly, too, because he knows how it makes us feel. Because it's, it's not a fun conversation to have with ourselves. But he begins an interesting discussion about what a regenerated new heart is and what it looks like. Verse 25, and he begins to talk about circumcision. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, all right, you and the Roman church who, who've had the law all your lives, you've been obeying it, seeking to be it, and now you place your trust in Christ. Great. Super. All your life, you've been trying to obey the law of God, and circumcision, as you know, is a sign of being a Jew. And what you really need, however, is a circumcision of the heart. What you really need is a new heart, not mere obedience outwardly. As important as that is, you can't have obedience outwardly before God that is acceptable until you have obedience inwardly. Because you'll never do what the law requires. It's interesting. Why does he bring up circumcision of all things? It's kind of weird, right? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Those of you who are with us through our travels in Abraham, remember Genesis 12 to 22? If you don't, that's okay. When God entered a relationship with Abraham, that was the first time God showed up and said to a person, an individual, I want to have an intimate personal relationship with you and as a sign of that relationship abraham i want you and everyone after you to be circumcised circumcision was a sign of the relationship with god the way baptism is a sign of our of our being in the church why circumcision though i think most people understand baptism right we get that imagery die to yourself in baptism washed and raised to new life rebirth, and all that stuff. But why did God choose circumcision as a sign of this intimate, covenant, 
personal relationship with the living God. And God said, Abraham, I want you to walk blamelessly before me. Uh, if you walk blamelessly before me, if you keep my covenant with you, I will bless you. But if you disobey my covenant, and you go your own way, you disobey me, I will cut you off. Just like that skin, I will, you will be cut off from the Lord. It's a natural punishment. So circumcision was a covenant. It was a contract. And back then, as you may remember, you didn't go to your lawyers to solidify the contracts in the ancient world. A person, you, me and Bob, got into a covenant. I might walk up to Bob, take some dirt, and pour it over me and say, may I become like this dust if I don't keep my covenant with you. You may remember some covenants were made by taking an animal and sacrificing them, cutting them in two, and placing them and walking through the pieces and saying, may I be like these animals if I do not keep my covenant with you. And it was a bloody mess. What God was saying to Abraham is, if you want to enter a relationship with me, you must be circumcised. And this means you're admitting, if you disobey my covenant with you, that you, Abraham, will be cut off. Question. Did Abraham obey the covenant? Nah. Did Isaac obey the covenant? Nah. Did Jacob obey the covenant? Nah. Answer, class, did anybody ever obey the covenant? No. no. Thank you. Why in the world does God have a people after all anyway? We can't do it. How can he keep a relationship with this covenant people? If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 2. There's a little verse that almost always, when you go by it, if you're reading Colossians, is one of those verses that you kind of skip over. You start to wonder, and you say, oh, I'll ask Gene about that someday. And that day never comes, right? You, I do that all the time. Oh, I'm going to ask Paul House. You know, I haven't talked to Paul in six months, you know. But right now we're going to get to it. Verse 11 and 12, Paul is talking about the cross to the Colossian church. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and he says to them, in him you were also circumcised. He's talking to Gentile Christians, by the way, who weren't literally circumcised. And he says, in Jesus you were also circumcised, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Here's what he's saying. On the cross, Jesus was cut off. That's why he calls it circumcision. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, I can't see you. Where are you, Father? In Isaiah 53, it says he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? He was getting the circumcision represented. He was being cut off. He was going under the knife, and it was a bloody mess. It was violent. He was getting the curse that we deserve. Because we can't stand in the judgment, and we can't stand before the law. And that's not all. It doesn't just say he was circumcised on the cross. It says, in Jesus, you were circumcised. Not a circumcision made with hands. In other words, you have a new heart. You have a new life. Because 
you're circumcised with Christ. So what does that mean? It means now you stand in the Christ perfectly clean. <laughs> Perfect. And he looks at you as his beloved child. When you read the law properly, you know, I had Bob read through, the, the, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the warm fuzzies, you know, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, right, will be saved. You keep reading that, if you not have a new heart, you're going to get crushed by it. But if it's just, what you'll do is you'll read the law and you'll realize Matthew 5 to 7 is describing a person. It's describing our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not crushed by the standard. You see the beauty of Jesus fulfilling the law for you. And according to the Bible, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ and you give your life to him, all your sins are transferred to him. He's cut off for you, and all the beauty of his law-keeping is given to you. And the beauty, all the beauty of this life transferred to you. And in Christ, six chapters later, it said, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll get to chapter 8 in four years. The idea of a circumcised heart is pretty weird, but it's a wonderful metaphor, amen? It's intimate, it's tender, and it's scary. What it means is your heart of stone begins to be a heart of flesh, and you begin to have a new attitude towards all the commands of God because they've been fulfilled for you in Jesus Christ. And you never look at the law of God and say, all right, I'm saved, it doesn't matter. I gave my life at a Billy Graham crusade in 1978. Check. I'm good. I got that in South Carolina all the time. You know? You're a Christian? Yeah, I gave my life to Billy Graham in 1962 down in Columbus. Really? See, the law is so important. Jesus died to fulfill the requirement. As a Christian, you say, I want to obey. I try like crazy to live like it, and yet when I fail, I'm not crushed by guilt. I'm not crushed and say what an awful person I am because you know what he died for you, because he loved you so much to die for you. It's this paradoxical attitude that we have to the law that Paul's trying to get us to see. We're absolutely diligently seeking to obey it, and when we fail, we never crush to the ground by it. And we're never hopeless. And you just get back on the horse of discipleship and keep riding. It's fascinating. In other words, we're not saying, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. Or, we all can live any way we want. Or, I'm not okay, everybody else is okay. Or, I'm okay, you're not okay. It's none of those things. Because that's exactly what some Christians do. It's, I'm not okay. You're not okay. I'm no better than you. Yet in Jesus Christ, we're all beautiful when God sees us. And as a result, going back to the beginning of the chapter, we're not judgmental people. We love people no matter where they are. And when someone wrongs me, we leave that to God because God's the judge and we can forgive them. I don't even judge myself. 
and look at myself and go, oh, I'm just such a rotten believer. No, I've already been judged in Jesus Christ. Don't you see that at the center of your life ought to be Jesus Christ? The judge of the earth and the judge who was judged for us. So if you bring Jesus to the center of your life, the judge of all the earth, you have both a healthy respect for moral absolutes, and you know there's a right and there's a wrong, and you know there's injustice, and you know it's important to seek justice when you see injustice. You know it's important to be a good person, a morally upright person, and yet on the other hand, you're not judgmental to people who don't live up to that. And you forgive people. You're not downing yourself, judging yourself when things go wrong. That's the uniqueness of the good news of Jesus Christ, friends. Oh, the uniqueness of being a follower of Jesus. It was said on the death of Luther's friend Nicholas Hausmann in Zwickau, Germany in 1522. He was asked to preach the funeral sermon for Pastor Nicholas. And so he got up in the pulpit, and everybody expect Dr. Luther to go on, because that was his tradition. And he said, brothers and sisters, what we preach, he lived. And he stepped out of the pulpit. Because throughout the ages, God's people have brought the judge who was the judge in our place into the middle of our lives. This is what Romans 1 and 2 is all about. So we'll come back to it next year. Young people, you need to understand this. Just because you're working, going to young life, you're doing all the things that good Christian young people do, Place your trust in this one, Lord Jesus Christ, now. Don't wait. Because the world is selling you a lie. The abundant life that it says is, is an absolute lie. Run to the judge who is judged for you. There's not an adult in here that wouldn't say that to you. Adults, it, it's a different world, isn't it? I think this election shows it. Pray for our country. But pray for us as God's people. We're praying for an awakening, but to, for there to be an awakening, God's church must repent. We all pray for humility. We all pray for the characteristics of Christianity. But my friends, repentance is where it all is. Let us repent and put this Jesus at the center of our lives. And you older adults who have faithfully handed over the faith to us, thank you. But you know, so many of the 20th century modernism crept into our lives that said, oh, just be a nice person. I grew up in the Diocese of Delightful. <laughs> because in Virginia, you know, you'd go to diocesan convention and, and somebody in their dockers would be sitting there and their, and their penny loafers were saying, oh, you're just such a delightful person. And it was more about being delightful than being a Christian getting the mission of the gospel around the old dominion. Wanted to smack them. <laughs> My friends, let us run to the cross once again and delight in this one who, who was our judge. So we're not judgmental. 
and we live unto the Lord as the one who died for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the bad news about Judgment Day. That there's many who will say, Lord, Lord, yet they don't know you. I pray that today we would be such a people who would give our lives to you and know you once and for all if we have yet to do so. You've given us the bad news that no one can stand on their own in the judgment. And the good news that your son Jesus Christ was circumcised for us on the cross. He was cut off for us, so now in him we have new hearts. And we can live lives increasingly dependent upon you and desirous to live for you. And we thank you for all of that. Father, we thank you for it and we ask that you would help us to live in accordance with it to appropriate it for ourselves, and to have such joy. And in the midst of our culture, great poise and the power which would come with what we believe and what we know. We ask that you would grant this in Jesus' name. Amen.